Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Wanda Morris. I'm the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and I've just taken a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. I woke up this morning, and a very beautiful sight. Like when you're feeling, it's all a big lie. Welcome to another edition of Left of the Valley with Karen and Karen, a show dedicated to positive atheism, secular thinking or secular humanism, and skeptical thinking. Hi guys, how are you doing today? Hi, Kevin. Yes, that is your cue. Kevin, <laughs> you. Oh, hello. Hi, hello. How are you, doing? How are you guys doing? Uh, Pretty well. We're good. Oh, good. How are you? <laughs> well, I was having a great show here and you know, it's already gone off the road, so... No, just kidding. Uh, we got a great show for everybody today. Here uh, we got lots to go through. Uh, we got, of course, uh, the state of history. We have uh, the Reformation report. Uh, we have uh, another brilliant moment. We have a list from Mark. And today we are talking about liquid natural gas with Damien Gillis. So that should be very fun. So what have you guys been up to? And uh, Liam, we haven't seen you in quite a while here. No. Yeah. What's What's I've happening? Busy. Busy doing what? Just busy. Just busy. <laughs> well, well, while I go and arrange this uh, pre-recorded version of uh, this in history, uh-huh. why don't you occupy the air? Oh, I'll fiddle with my mic. How about that? <laughs> Make lots of sound. It won't be quiet airtime. It'll just we'll be sing. okay. Y'all <laughs> uh, ready for this? <laughs> This Day in History, a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between January 18th and February 1st. We'll skip to January 20th, um, which is Inauguration Day in the States, and more importantly, according to some, the birthday of the only real Tarzan, who was, of course, Johnny Weissmiller. Who's, and there is actually a name for his Tarzan yell, and it is called the Victory Cry of the Bull Ape, and it lives on today in ringtones. I think only Carol Burnett did a better job, don't you? I wish you had told me that. I would have brought in some kind of effect for that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everybody can hear it in their heads for sure. Totally, totally. <laughs> At least I hope so. Okay, let's skip to January the 23rd which is National Pie Day in the States. And one story on this day eclipses everything else. You will love it. On January 23rd, in 1897, Elva Zona Heaster is found dead in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. The resulting murder trial of her husband is perhaps the only case in the United States history where the alleged testimony of a ghost helped secure a conviction. Oh, spooky. <laughs> no, this is a great story because it has a 
wonderful cast of characters, a legal landmark, lots of woo-woo, and took place in the Appalachians. Could anything be more perfect than this? So did they use a Ouija board to cross-examine? I'm not telling you anything until you get to listen <laughs> to the whole story. Okay, here's the story. This young lady named Elva Zona Heaster, which in itself is a great name, marries a good-looking local blacksmith who's from Droop Mountain, <laughs> Droop Mountain, West Virginia. Okay, his name is Erasmus Stripling Trout Shoe, called Trout for short. Okay, blacksmith shoe. <laughs> this is the truth. This is the, that's what's so great. Anyway, Elva's mother. Mary Jane Hester was very wary of, of shoe from the beginning. Three months after the wedding, a neighbor discovered Elvis' lifeless body and ran for the doctor. So when he arrived, Trout had laid her out on the bed and prepared for burial with a veil covering her face. The doctor, who probably didn't graduate at the head of his class, found... <laughs> found nothing amiss with what he could see, and Trout was wailing and crying and holding her head. So he said, no, no, cause of death, natural, everlasting faint. <laughs> everlasting faint? Everlasting faint. That was wow. a natural, I know. I thought only Elvis could produce only that. <laughs> I know. So Mary Jane Hester, the mother, was convinced that Trout murdered her daughter, but she couldn't prove it. So she prayed for her daughter to come back from the dead and reveal the truth about her death. So weeks later, she went to the local prosecutor, John Preston, and said that her daughter, Elva, had appeared to her as a ghost and revealed that Trout had abused and strangled her. Oh, my God. So this is wonderful. So Preston, the prosecutor, may or may not have believed the story, but upon investigating Trout, found that he had been married twice before, mm -hmm. and yeah, and that the second wife had been found dead under suspicious circumstances. So he dug her up, had her um, a, a proper uh, examination by a coroner, and sure enough, found out that um, she had been strangled. So according to the local paper, another great name, the Pocahontas, <laughs> the Pocahontas <laughs> Times. <laughs> there, oh, my God. Yeah, there was ample reason to convict Trout Shoe, and the jury believed Mrs. Hester. So Shoe, who for some reason now decided he wanted to be called Edward, <laughs> who knows, was convicted and sent to prison where he later died of measles in prison. Oh, <laughs> I man. Know. Poor guy. Nice connection with the measles outbreak. Exactly. <laughs> you sure it wasn't Disney? <laughs> it wasn't Disney. I know. So the capper on this is that there is an actual historical marker in Greenbrier County. And in part, the marker reads, Greenbrier Ghost. Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester Shoe, only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, you you wonder whether the the mother 
made the story up because she was so convinced and it was a strategic lie, Mm -hmm. or she was a religious woman and really believed that she had this reoccurring dream and she had to report it. Oh, totally. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Shu should have realized he was up against a determined mother. (laughs) He picked the wrong third wife in this case. Oh, goodness gracious. (laughs) Okay, so... Now we'll skip to January the 27th, uh, just for a little different kind of a shudder up and down your spine. This is the day that the first electric dental drill (laughs) was patented by Dr. George F. Green from Kalamazoo. From Kalamazoo? There's a song in there somewhere. (laughs) Dentist drill Kalamazoo for sure. I know if you could ever figure out how to make drill and Kalamazoo rhyme, rhyme you'd have it made. <laughs> Drillamazoo, Drillamazoo. Yeah. Uh, also on the 27th, um, in 2010, some guy named Steve Jobs, who was CEO of Apple. That name is familiar. Yeah, unveiled a new invention, which was a tablet called the iPad at a press conference in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Do you know what ever happened? I know what happened to the dr- dental drill, but do you know what ever happened to this Steve Jobs guy and this invention? I think he's on the same desert, desert island as Elvis and Marilyn <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So it'd be nice to know what ever happened to him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, going to January the 28th. I think this is really interesting uh, day that you and I probably never heard of, or maybe, it's National Data Privacy Day. Oh. It's an international holiday that occurs every January 28th, and the purpose of it is to raise awareness and promote privacy and data protection best practices. It's currently, if you can use the word celebrated, in the United States, Canada, and 27 European countries. In Europe, it's called uh, Data Protection Day rather than Data Privacy Day. So that's the big story for all the spy crafters who are who are listening in. So um, from what I read of it, the the uh, the day's educational initiative originally focused on raising awareness among businesses as well as users about the importance of protecting the privacy of their personal information online, uh, especially in social networking. Um, But in the educational focus is expanded to include families, consumers, and businesses. So since it started, uh, a lot of global organizations embrace the day as Data Privacy and Protection Day. So you think they're doing enough to protect us? Are people, you think people becoming more aware to protect data and breaches, or you think uh, it's just exponentially getting to be more of a problem? Uh, I think it is getting a bigger and bigger problem. I think the technology is moving faster than we can catch up with it. You know. Yeah, that's 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 the problem. It's like the hole in the dike. The minute you plug one up, that's right. That's right. Another one totally opens up. Alrighty, um, let's skip. Uh, we are on the 28th. I thought we were going to skip, but we're still on the 28th. Um, it was a really sad. Uh, historical day. That was the day that we lost the crew of the Challenger yeah. in 1986, which was a uh, really sad. Yeah, I was listening to the radio when it happened. Were you, were you listening when that happened? Uh, I believe I was probably in class at school. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, I think the whole country of North America just had a huge intake of, <gasps> yeah. oh my 
Gosh. Especially since there was a teacher on board. Like, yeah. I think that really hit everybody. It's a sad, sad day. And ending with uh, February the 1st, interesting day. It's the start of uh, LGBT History Month in oh, the UK. Really? Oh. And Black History Month, month in Canada. Hmm. So a lot of good stuff there. Um, unfortunately, uh, another sad remembrance, um, another crew of the ill-fated uh, Columbia left us in 2003. So um, sad that uh, you know, on the same day in history, two uh, very sad shuttle events. But let's end on a let's end on a, on a bright note. Mm. Um, I think there's some kind of a football game going on on February. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> something about a bowl. Something about a bowl in yeah. uh, Arizona. Hawks and, and bowls. Hawks and bowls and a, a baby about to be born and footballs that are deflated. Yeah, maybe something. that's a dirigible, that's a Goodyear blimp. Maybe it's something, deflated. Something. <laughs> I, and I, I just concentrate on munchies and commercials anyway. So. <laughs> well, first, uh, they say the Super Bowl apparently is the one day a year where you will go off your diet for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so if I, you had a New Year's resolution, this is where you break it. The, I think that's mandatory, you know, for this time of the year. All righty. So, dear listeners, that brings us up to date on February the 1st. Have a happy couple of weeks ahead when we'll bring you another This Day in History. Thank you, Nancy. Well, wasn't that fun? Ghost story is great. I love it. That's a great ghost story. I'm going to start using ghosts as testimony more often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, forget the uh, dog ate my uh, my homework. Yeah. Thing. You could like do, the best yeah. She's ever, yeah. Yeah. Been haunted. You used to just tell the teacher you live in an old house and you got haunted and you and know it's been terrifying and your homework's all vanished and and the names were also awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine the names. Um, okay. So uh, after that, uh, we get uh, anything you guys want to add to this? No. Uh, no. And the Reformation Report coming from Chilliwack as well. Just a reminder, the Reformation Report is local news. It's local news. It's uh, essentially out of Chilliwack. Um, our correspondent also uh, actually managed to interview briefly um, the NDP candidate for the uh, federal election. Uh, now, the full... For the uh, Chilliwack writing. Yeah, for the Chilliwack writing. Uh, the 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 full uh, interview is not on there. What he did is he actually uh, posted a uh, YouTube page where he posted the entire thing there. So uh, you can look that up. So I guess I'll go right ahead and play that. Unless you guys want to talk about something else in the meantime here. No, go ahead. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of the Reformation Report, brought to you by me, the Reformed, at the First United Congregation of New Atheism in Chilliwack. Well, we've got a short little week for you this week. Uh, on January 22nd, I uh, attended a town hall meeting at the Stolo Nation uh, Research Center. Uh, the uh, town hall meeting was hosted by uh, Mishonic McPherson, who is the federal NDP candidate for the Chilliwack Hope Riding. Uh, it was a really informative um, meeting. 
the discussion was on uh, protecting our waterways and the importance of, um, of the waterways throughout Chilliwack and the Lower Mainland and the uh, impending danger to those waterways um, as posed by uh, companies such as Kinder Morgan and the Northern Gateway Project. Um, and uh, the, uh, the meeting was, uh, had six panelists, uh, Dr. Mike Pearson from Pearson Ecological, Carrie Lynn Victor, the Stoll Tribal Council, Michael Hale from Pipe Up Network, Ms. Seanick McPherson, who is the NDP candidate, uh, Joanne Gutierrez-Hugh, who was a tribal, Stolo Nation tribal chief, and Andra uh, Avizio, and I hope I said her name right, uh, and she's an environmental scientist and youth activist. And um, it was really encouraging. There was about 100 people or so out. Uh, the only or disappointing part was uh, the fact that I didn't notice anybody under the age of 20. Um, but anyway, prior to this meeting, I had the opportunity to uh, interview uh, Ms. McPherson um, and uh, get a few thoughts from her. And I'm just going to um, insert those thoughts here, and then we'll come back to the rest of the Reformation Report. Okay, enjoy the, the short interview. Academic research with public policy on things like the environment, on immigration, settlement. Uh, and um, then it was progressively dismantled by the Conservatives. A lot of people don't realize the extent to it. Mm -hmm. Certainly scientists do. At U of Z, they have um, protests even, the professors of science at oh. U of Z, yes, over this issue. So um, it's been underreported. So you find, what did they do? The, the, uh, the, uh, policy they had around stats camp to remove the mandatory um, long-form census. Actually, that was produced enormous wealthy data mm -hmm. on Canada that informed policy. Because I worked in immigration settlement for years, I know the extent of that research okay. and the value it gave us. Mm -hmm. it, it, it strongly reinforced things that are counterintuitive about the value of social investment in immigration, for mm -hmm. instance. And now that data is gone. Uh, so it leaves us instead making decisions based on our preferences, which are not necessarily reliable. Right. Right? I mean, naturally, we have things preferences like don't bring in outsiders, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. not that we like diversity to some extent, but not that much, especially if we might end up without a job and mm -hmm. someone does, seems to, who has one. Except when we start understanding that actually our economic growth is contingent on this, and our, our, our retirement funds are contingent on this replacement and that we don't have enough of a labor force to manage things like the um, liquefied natural gas initiatives here in BC. Then you start understanding the value of it. But we've lost that tool because of federal policies. We've mm -hmm. lost, they've dismantled the fisheries protection that had scientists doing environmental regulations. Why does that matter? Because the key issue is we have, um, commons or public um, resources that are publicly owned are owned by us in common and in fact not even owned. They are entrusted to us in common mm -hmm. and polit politicians should be public trustees to oversee this public trust that we have in conserving our rivers, our lakes, um, our ocean fronts. Uh, and, uh, the problem is, is that the Conservatives have removed our ability to make decisions about risk assessment. 
so it looks like you've got environmentalists who have an opinion or mm-hmm. a preference against companies that have a preference. But that isn't the issue. The issue is what is the risk to people? People need to drink water. We need water. It's, so do other creatures need water. So if we talk about a pipeline, what is the risk? If we talk about a mine, what is the risk? The only people who can give us that information are scientists. Mm-hmm. The only ones. Mm-hmm. And therefore they're pivotal in the, the um, process of public trust that democratic institutions have grown on. Uh, and then it's actually for the public to decide the level of risk we would tolerate. Mm-hmm. And many times, in fact, if you ask most people, you would find that most would say it should be zero. Mm-hmm. I've actually done some of this work with students, okay. a lot of international students, too. And most feel things like toxic waste. I've given them this example that's going on in Chilliwack now. Should have zero zero risk mm-hmm. or close to zero risk to be allowed even within a 50-mile perimeter of a inhabited area, and yet we allow things to go through because we think scientists or government is taking care of. Well, that's not the role for science to tell us, nor do they Mm -hmm. actually necessarily say what risk level we will tolerate. That's a moral or ethical question, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a nuclear uh, plant in the community, and there's a 0.01% chance of it leaking, is that tolerable, mm-hmm. right? Like, who gets yeah. to decide what's, you know, what, what the casualties, what do they, the, like, you, what's that term, the, um, you know, like in war, they... I know, it's on the tip of my tongue, I know, I know. what it is. <laughs> but anyway, the, the number of people that people will tolerate dying or suffering from a mishap. So, anyway, scientists are really key in that. So I'm quite concerned about it. It's one reason we're starting with an event on protecting our waters. Mm -hmm. Our waterways is really to bring the focus on science and restoring um, environmental protection. And then you have to combine environmental protection with scientific information Mm -hmm. and neutral scientific, unbiased objectives, which is what science is. data that have some consensual, like some diverse sources that give it that consensus, and combine it with the need for social license, which means citizens managing it, actually, mm-hmm. with public trustees who are politicians. So politicians have to be quite squeaky clean in this process and have a lot of integrity to be able to listen to science and not cave to them, understand that they also have to listen to citizens and then bring those forward without being tempted by being offered seats in the boards of oil companies, for instance, Mm -hmm. which routinely goes on, um, that we maintain integrity. Okay, welcome back to uh, the Reformation Report. Um, I'm going to try and put that whole interview with Ms. McPherson up on the uh, Reformation Report YouTube channel, uh, which will be coming shortly, and hopefully Kevin and Karen can put uh, the link to that channel in the descriptor. Um, that's about it for the Reformation Report this week. Um, if you have any ideas of news or things that you want included, uh, please don't hesitate to email me at saintofkilda, that's S-A-I-N-T-O-F-K-I-L-D-A, at gmail.com, saintofkilda.com. All right, take care and have a great week, guys. 
Well, what do you guys think about that? Well, it was an interesting uh, interview. I I don't necessarily agree with everything that she said there, but um, I thought it was an interesting starting point for conversation. A politician in training. I guess we'll have to keep an eye on her. I thought her message was a bit mixed. She kept on saying, well, we have to listen to the science, but then we don't make our decisions based on the science. But, you know, we should know what the science is. So I, <laughs> it was a little bit awkward trying to get what her actual meaning was, but I, I obviously think scientists are incredibly important, and we really should be making our decisions based on what they think as opposed to maybe what a uh, certain number of people might voice. I mean, it's easy to manipulate uh, numbers as far as saying how many voters support a certain thing, but if you have the science behind you and tell you, look, you're going to contaminate your water if you do this, I don't think it matters how many people support that. Uh, I think that you don't do it because you don't want your water contaminated. Uh, speaking of uh, double speaking politicians and weird stuff, remember last show we had Wanda Morris on? Of course I remember. And she was even the plug at the beginning of the show. Well, the funny thing is, is after our interview, very, like the next day or so, the federal government announced that they would no longer consider uh, Dying with Dignity a charity. Now, I'm, I had a story on this, but unfortunately I lost it. So I'm going to have to go but just by memory here. Um, this is, of course, the uh, Stephen Harper government that decided to, um, which gave them permission to be become that. And it's not the first time they, they were designated as a charity. And they had uh, uh, reapplied, and they would it was given back to them. But then... Uh, uh, the revenue agency came in and uh, basically said, no, uh, we just changed our mind. You guys are no longer... Well, uh, is there a solid criteria for that? Yes, though? there is. You can't just revoke someone's charity status. There are criteria. If you meet the criteria, you get to be a registered charity. You can't just revoke it. So I think probably what happened is that the government told the CRA to investigate them, and they probably are having some kind of review. Um, and the government has a, has a history of doing this to anyone who isn't... Uh, whose ideas they maybe don't agree with, or anyone who's environmental, anything like the that. Stephen Harper government. Yes, they will force a review of those their yeah. their practices and their uh, revenue reporting. But um, I I find it very hard to believe they could just revoke the status. So well, they're basically saying that the, the reason for revoking the status is because apparently, uh, well, they they're they're saying that uh, dying with dignity uh, is doing too much lobbying. And that is the reason that uh, they're more of a lobbyist group, I guess, than instead of a charity. And that's why the CRA apparently revoked that. I think it's outrageous because God knows there's a lot of uh, religious charities out there that are doing just as much lobbying. Yeah, that's a ridiculous thing to say. And sure. and that's another point is that um, non-profit organizations, uh, non-governmental organizations that do charity work in other countries, um, they've had their funding slashed and slashed and slashed by the Harper government, except for the religious ones who have actually had their funding increased. So there's a, a clear conflict of interest there. And, and the statistics, pardon me, the statistics are all there. On, you can find them online if you want to research it. Liam. Uh, have you ever had this situation, this weird situation, where you get a knock at the door, and you go answer, and uh, you realize there's like two usually young people standing there, they usually have a little, little tie on, and they say, hello, can we uh, steal a moment of your time to speak to you about our Lord? Have you ever had that moment? Yes, I've had that. Yes, they're usually called Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Sometimes they're Mormons. Yeah, yeah sometimes well, I've had the Mormons. Too. Well, this is, this is just going to turn into the great segment that we have this weekend. Another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. Actually, you know what? I'm going to change that. How about 
stupid things religious people say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a story this this week for you guys. Um, JW Leader, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they have they sort of have a little television show here and there, and maybe even a channel or something. It's called the GW Online TV Network. And uh, one of their leader is a guy named Tony Morris. And um, he went on a scary tirade against higher secular education. Now, I really want you to talk about this, Liam, because you know what? Uh, you're a young man, although people can't see you because this is radio, you know. They know you're like six foot what? four. What? They can't see us on radio? That's right. No way. No, you did your hair for no reason. <laughs> and, you know, Liam is like six four, three hundred pounds of muscle, but he's also a young man going through education right now. So uh, I really wanted him to, what he thought about the story. So anyway, this guy goes on this long, long tirade, and I've got a few quotes here. I really want your opinion on this. Uh, on the video at the um, 4 minutes and 30 second mark, he says, and I quote, All too often, our young people have met with spiritual disaster, especially, especially after leaving home and living in a university campus. Spiritual disaster. There's probably insurance for that. So parents and children, <laughs> you need to have a goal and you need to have a plan. If you're missing either one, Satan will provide it for you. Young people, ask yourself, why am I considering additional education? Is it because I'm pursuing a specific skill or tire or trade to support my, ser- my service to Jehovah? Or have I pr- been pressured by the system? <laughs> Pure pressure. You know, yeah. The system is pressuring you to go to school right now. Into believing that higher education will somehow make it more, me more of a respected person or lead me to a better life. Okay, so everyone should be an uneducated ditch digger if you're a Jehovah Witness. Is no, that no, what no, he's no. saying? No, you can go to school as you long as you're doing it to better serve Jehovah. Yeah, you can but dig for Jehovah. Not, <laughs> <laughs> not if the system is pressuring you to do it. Okay. Yeah, because you know, if you go to school and says, you know what, I've been pressured to, to smoke and weed and try coke and have sex, but the pressure of higher education was really the one I couldn't resist. <laughs> I'm going to become a lawyer now. Well, yeah. uh, this guy assumes that the, the students are starting out from a, a home that um, taught them whatever religious things. So Liam's actually safe from these kind of pressures. <laughs> well, it, it, this actually reminds me of that Fox News report where the the newscaster says, oh, uh, the students at our country's universities are believing what their teachers tell them. Uh, (gasps) No! (laughs) Oh, whoa! That was a fun one to watch. It's it's on YouTube. Uh, (laughs) Wow! (laughs) I keep on going. This guy gets up. At six six minute ten, he says, if we are in continued association with those who do not believe the same, it can erode our thinking and conviction. This is the way of basically saying don't associate with people that think. You know, if if one thing well, it is see, one thing to work on a job with others, it's quite another matter to immerse your, oneself in an institution of learning. Ooh. Wow. See, see, to me, this is silly because if, no, really, no, but, <laughs> see, if, if whatever you believe is the truth, it shouldn't matter how much new information you get. Exactly. It will continue to reinforce your belief, right? Exactly. Because if you actually believe what's out there, then every bit of data that you get will, you know, just promote what you already believe. Uh, you haven't spoken to Father <laughs> Vern, which actually we have a segment on Father Vern. 
coming up. That will be funny, actually. But but, but if, if you believe something that's wrong, then the more you learn, the more ridiculous it seems. Yes, and so that's... that's th- them saying that almost is, is like putting up a sign that says, actually, I'm not telling the truth. Because yeah. if if Jehovah's Witnesses were right, then he would say, oh, go get your higher education. Yeah. And it won't matter because you'll come back believing more in what you Yeah, did before, exactly. Right? You'll just get reinforcement that everything it said is right. Well, hold on. <laughs> Speaking of that, let me segue into this. <laughs> At 9.44, he says, I have long said, the better the university, the greater the danger. <laughs> the oh, most, my God. The most intelligent and eloquent professors will be trying to reshape the thinking of your child. And their influence can be tremendous. One mom, I recall, asked me to try to help her son who was attending the prestigious name university at Rhode Island. After visiting him, I later had to inform her that her son now believes in evolution. She refused to believe it until he finally told her himself. How sad. <laughs> hmm. And then he went on to give several anecdotes I get old stories anyway of families broken, families completely broken by kids pursuing secular education <laughs> and discontinuing their service to Jehovah. That's so sad. Wow. I don't know what to say to that. And you know, that really offends me too because I, I can't imagine, you know, even if my children were to suddenly become um, ardent JWs, for instance, I would still love them and I would still support them in every way I could and I would not disown them and it would not cause the family to be broken, although it would probably make for some really interesting dinnertime conversations. But I don't understand how you can just say, well, my religion is far more important than my flesh and blood children and therefore, because well, you now believe in evolution, get out of my house. Like but, That's but horrible. You're also coming at it from the other way around, right? You You think... If I were to start being Jehovah's Witness, I would you know, believe in crazy spiritual stuff, but at the end of the day, all that would matter is my actual life. Whereas if you believe that there's a world to come and that what you do today is going to you know, influence what happens to you later, then if I come back saying that I'm going to embrace a life of sin, then you think that I'm going to be punished for eternity as a mm. result. You know, So, so it, it's a fear thing. Right. Yeah, but it's also I agree with that, but it's also a lack of respect thing. And personally, I think that that you're not you don't respect your child enough to think that they're intelligent enough and independent enough to make that decision on their own. That that they have to be forced to follow you, or else they are just wrong and lost. Well, you know, you never know. First they start studying, then you never know. They start believing in evolution. God knows where else they'll just might end up. They might end up, you know, very smart and rich and make their name immortal for the rest of their life. You don't want that kind of stuff when you mm. serve Jehovah. No, that's true. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. They, they, Jehovah's Witnesses actually think it's bad to mix in politics, too. Maybe that's for the same reason. Oh, anyway, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so I guess we'll go with something a bit lighter. How about something, how about the adventures of Father Vern? Can well, I, has anyone, have we ever done the adventures uh, of Father Vern? You haven't introduced Father No, Vern. no, we haven't done the Well, you need to explain it. You can't just, you have to give a preamble. You can't just jump into the adventures of Father Vern. Yeah, you need to build up. Well, we we just happen to be following this priest, Father Vern, Catholic yes, priest. Yes, yes. And uh, this is uh, the first of some of his adventures. He's so. um, you know, he's local and he's he's a very reverend person, and we're honored to know him. And uh, we've been um, you know, uh, he's allowed us to have some access to his life as a priest. So so enjoy. And now it's time for another installment in The Adventures of Father Vern. 
This week, we find Father Vern in the unusual setting of the local city bus.
books that do not exist. <laughs> this is like that song, that uh, game we play on, on road trips. Fictional <laughs> Fric- band name. Fictional Canadian band name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sled dog after birth. Still being it. my favorite. <laughs> You're not taking this seriously. Poor Mark, he's working hard for this. So let me go ahead and play that then. <laughs> Thanks, Live Kevin, for pressing play on this recorded piece. This week, I'd like to recommend five fictional books with biblical characters. First up, The Preservationalist by David Maine. Visitations from God are a mixed blessing for Noah, or No, as he's called here, and his family in David Maine's endurable debut novel. Noah's family, his wife, sons and daughters-in-law, tell what it's like to live with a man touched by God while struggling against events that cannot be controlled or explained. When Noah orders his sons to build an ark, he can't tell them where the wood will come from. When he sends his daughters-in-law out to gather animals, he can offer no directions, money or protection. And once the rain starts, they all realise that the true test of their faith is just beginning. The family is trapped on an ark with thousands of animals, with no experience feeding or caring for them, and no idea when the waters will recede. What emerges is a family caught in the midst of an extraordinary event, with all the tension, humanity and humour that that implies. Next up is The Red Tent by Anita Diamond. The Red Tent tells the story of Dinah, daughter of Jacob and sister of Joseph. She is a minor character in the Bible, but the author has broadened her story. Told in Dinah's voice, the novel reveals the traditions and turmoils of ancient womanhood, the world of the Red Tent. It begins with the story of her mothers, Leah, Rachel, Zilpha, and Bilhah, the four wives of Jacob. They love Dinah and give her gifts that sustain her through a hard-working youth, a calling to midwifery, and a new home in a foreign land. The book's title refers to the tent in which women of Jacob's tribe must, according to the ancient law, take refuge while menstruating or giving birth, and in which they find a mutual support and encouragement from their mothers, sisters, and aunts. Making it into the top three is Philip Pullman, the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ. In this ingenious and spellbinding retelling of the life of Jesus, Philip Pullman revisits the most influential story ever told. It retells the story of Jesus as if he were two people, brothers, Jesus and Christ, with contrasting personalities. Jesus being a moral and godly man, and his brother Christ, a calculating figure who wishes to use Jesus' legacy to found a powerful church. The good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ throws fresh light on who Jesus was and asks the reader to question that will come to resonate long after the final page is turned. For above all, this book is about how stories become stories. My pick for number two is Lamb, The Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal by Christopher Moore. Biff is resurrected in the 20th century to complete missing parts of the Bible under the ineffectual supervision of Raziel. According to Biff, Joshua, by Biff's account of the Hebrew origin of Jesus, travelled eastward to consult the three wise men, a magician, a Buddhist and a Hindu yogi, who attended Joshua's birth, so that Joshua may learn how to become the Messiah. Over 20 years, Joshua surpasses the trio by incorporating his beliefs into theirs. He learns to multiply food from a wise man and learns to become invisible from another. Whereas his ability to resurrect the dead initiates his first meeting with Biff in childhood. Throughout his role, Biff is sarcastic, 
practical and loyal, against and sometimes idealistic character. The recounting of Jesus' human and godlike qualities, combined with Bith's earthly debauchery, humorously explains the origins of judo, reasons that the Jews eat Chinese food on Christmas, and how rabbits become associated with Easter. The three wise men, Mary Magdalene, Joseph and Mary, appear as well. Mary at Magdalene, here nicknamed Maggie, is depicted as harbouring love for Joshua, while Joshua remains celebrate, celibate, sorry, and Biff compensates by his active sexuality of his own. And my number one pick is Good Omens by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. The book, by two authors who would go on to be masters of their craft, is a comedy about the birth of the son of Satan, the coming of the end times, and attempts of the angel Azraphel and the demon Anthony J. Crowley to avert them, having become accustomed to their comfortable situations in the human world. A subplot features the growing up of the Antichrist, Adam, and his gang, and the gathering of the four horsepersons of the Apocalypse. According to the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which, the world's only completely accurate book of prophecies written in 1655 before she exploded, the world will end on a Saturday, next Saturday in fact, just before dinner. So, the armies of good and evil are amassing. Atlantis is rising, frogs are falling, tempers are flaring. Everything appears to be going according to plan, except a somewhat fussy angel and fast-living demon, both of whom have lived amongst Earth's mortals since the beginning and have grown rather fond of the lifestyle, are not actually looking forward to the coming rapture. And someone has misplaced the Antichrist. I hope you enjoy this list and uh, might want to pick up a couple of those books and read them yourself. As always, feel free to head over to leftatthevalley.com and recommend some books you think we might like. Have a good week and stay sceptical. Oops, sorry. <laughs> that was the wrong thing. Well, thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. That was awesome. So you guys obviously agree with what you're saying there. Yeah, we're both giving him a thumbs up to Actually, good omens. I think most of those books exist. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> I am going to send Mark after you, and the British are not calling. <laughs> no, that's a great list. I, I highly approve of Good Omens as number one pick. Although I actually haven't read the others. I'm a big fan of Philip Pullman, though, so I am going to uh, look up that that pick right away. Excellent. Well, now we're finally coming down to what was the, the point of all this today. Uh, we were talking about liquid natural gas. That was the point of the show. Until all this <laughs> other stuff happened. Yeah, this was all fluff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all fluff. So anyway, so uh, liquid natural gas. It's been the news for quite a while now, and the, the province has been very busy building all this stuff. So I thought I'd bring a few um, stats for you guys to uh, ruminate over. And this these uh, stats I've taken from the uh, BC Tap Water Association. There is such a thing as the BC Tap Water Association? Apparently. Yeah. BCTWA. Wow. Now, turns out that uh, these are stats for 2010. What? Go you ahead. Don't think it's, okay. I, I can't hear you. Oh, well, since when do you listen anyway? <laughs> <laughs> In 2010, apparently, 34, uh, 34 trillion. No, sorry, 34,795,623,800 cubic meters of raw gas were extracted in B.C. 
Really? Liquid natural gas? Well, no, it's just natural gas, right? Okay. To put a liquid natural gas, you have to cool it down. You have to okay. liquefy it okay. to transport. So this All is right. just gas. Uh-huh. Now, interestingly enough, out of that number, which had $34 billion, essentially, almost $35 billion, $7 billion, 262,430,900 cubic meters were lost due to various reasons. This is essentially 21% of the gross amount of what they've ex- extracted is lost into the atmosphere. Now, if you look at the local consumption, in the mainland, we uh, this is still 2010, uh, we consume about 4 billion cubic meters of uh, natural gas. On the island, it's about 781 million. In the north, it's about uh, 60 million. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, 4 billion, 7 million, 60... Yeah, and the uh, northeast is about 87 uh, million cubic gas. Uh, and when you export, there's three places they apparently export. Uh, they export through Huntington, going to the states. They export through ch- uh, to Chicago and to Alberta. That is approximately 23 billion 669 million 591 thousand 500 cubic meters of natural gas. Now it's it's very it's very interesting. Um, in the meantime, we had interesting uh, activity in other countries. Like, jump in whenever you want, guys. <laughs> don't. Okay. So those are just statistics. We don't have a. <coughs> the, well, this, uh, what I got is 2014, uh, 2010. Sorry, I don't have 2014 here. Uh, but it gives you a, a bit of a picture, you know, of what is being extracted in 2010, and of course. Well, it'll have gone up by now. Exactly, it's probably gone up by now. But what is amazing is the 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 amount of loss, right? And it's lost because of very stupid things, too. It's lost because, you know, when you extract it, you lose some of it. Some of their flare-ups, sometimes they burn some of it. It's uh, When you put it in a pipeline, sometimes some of it will seep out. And what people don't realize is uh, natural gas is uh, a lot like methane. Actually, I have that somewhere, don't I? I don't know. And it's actually, it's, 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 it's uh, mostly methane, and it's much more potent than CO2. So this whole boom of liquid natural gas is not a great thing for if you're an environmentalist. And we'll talk to Damien Gillis later about that. Um, we've had some bans and moratoriums all over the world. Uh, for example, in uh, 2011, in June 2011, France banned it. Um, 2012, in January, Bulgaria. You have uh, Romania and South Africa, Germany, uh, the Czech Republic. And these are not necessarily full-size bans, but you have some of them in a moratorium. Um, there's a Black pro- uh, River province in Argentina, um, Valladolid in Spain, uh, Cantabria, the canton of Freiburg in Switzerland, Austria, the city of Bamba in Italy, the several town and district in Ireland as well. These are just some of the examples. In Canada, Quebec put a moratorium on the fracking. Or on fracking, or is it a ban altogether? I believe it's a moratorium until further uh, scientific yeah. research yeah. has been done. New Brunswick did the same thing. Uh, Newfoundland apparently is speaking about it, and so did Nova Scotia. Well, and Scotland did recently. Yes, yes. in Scotland. Absolutely, Scotland just did. Uh, that was a ban altogether, wasn't it, on, on Scotland? Uh, I believe so. I believe yeah. so. And Bloomberg predicted that 60% drop in Asian natural uh, liquid natural gas prices by 2020. So it's interesting that we're pursuing this thing because to uh, extract the gas, liquefy it at great energy cost, and then ship it across the ocean to China, the price has to remain really high for it to be uh, to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying is that um, our 
Okay, I get stuck right now, sorry. <laughs> well, I didn't even have to use the mute button for that. That's pretty good. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess you're 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 the next generation, Liam. So um, what are your thoughts on something like that? Well, I, I think it was pushed a lot as being a stopgap because uh, companies would say, oh, well, we're going to have to stop using oil eventually because environment, so we're going to use LNG now instead. And the, it's expanded under that guise. A bridge fuel. Yeah. A bridge fuel until, until we get the green technology. And uh, we actually... Uh, we actually posed that uh, question to Damien Gillis, which he'll answer that in the mm. uh, the uh, interview coming up. But in the meantime, <coughs> well, is it starting? So Christy Clark has uh, bet our whole future on a resource that most countries in the world are banning. Yeah, slowly but surely. Well, you know this theme, guys. It means we've got a pop quiz. Oh no. Oh yeah. Of course, Damien Gillis is not here to play with us, but that's okay. It'll be Karen versus Liam. See what happens here. And we're doing on Liquid Natural Gas, of course. Surprise, 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 surprise. I thought it was going to be in fictional books. No, that's, <laughs> I would like to have Mark. It's hard to test that. <laughs> Lay off, Mark. Mark I love that. Mark's lists, and I know he'll appreciate my sense of humor. <laughs> Please, send, you, <laughs> send your hate mail to Karen Go ahead, Liquid Natural Gas. Karen The opinions of Karen and Liam are not necessarily the ones at leftatthevalley.com and subsidiaries and blah, blah, blah. I thought we were leftatthevalley.com. Didn't we just hire him to do tech stuff? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pop quiz. What is the percentage of jobs in BC that is um, created by oil and gas? Is it A... 0.1%. Currently, right now, this is jobs created by yes. the oil and gas industry. Yes. Okay. Is it B, 6%? Is it C, 9%? Or is it T, T? <laughs> D, T. D, 12%. I'm going with 9%. Um, A, 0.1%. <laughs> Liam has it. 9% is actually construction. Oh. Uh, the 12% is retail. The 6% is finance. 0.1% is actually what's created by... Uh, LNG. Well, you can say 1% if you put in the uh, support industries and the mining industry as well. Wow. So. I remember we looked this up recently because we, uh, you said that, that the mining industry didn't support many jobs, and I remember as a teenager it supported a huge number of jobs, and I disagreed with you when we looked it up, and yeah, it was like this tiny amount that was a real surprise because it used to be much higher, but it's, it's dwindling. Yep, you just missed this question here. I know, I know, but I still thought it was higher than that, so I just mem- remembered wrong. All right. I'll put an easier question. True or false? <laughs> Motion picture and sound industry provide twice as many jobs to BC. As LNG? I'm saying that's true. I'm going to say it's false because it's more. <laughs> oh, Liam's on a roll. It is. It was a true question. It's false. That's actually four times. <sighs> Wow. Yet for some reason, the liberal government resisted subsidies to the I film. I know. They were really nasty to the film industry. Yeah, and for some reason, gas is all great. Another true or false. Since 2008, the natural gas sector has received $6.5 to $7 billion in subsidies due to failing gas prices. True or false? True. True. That is true. Unbelievable. I know. That's your tax... That's our tax money hard at work, subsidizing an industry that's failing all over the world. Good. Like I said earlier, natural gas is mostly mostly methane. 
How much more potent is methane to carbon dioxide in trapping heat? Is it A, twice as much? B, 30 to, uh, 31 times as much? C, 57 times as much? Or D, 86 times as much? Um, D. Um, I'm going with 31 times as much. B. Liam has it. Hey, Liam, you're on a roll, man. <laughs> it is 86 times, and some, some experts will say almost 105 times as much. Wow. More uh, more powerful at trapping gas. Uh, heat, 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 heat. Sorry. Heat and I, then, uh, I knew methane was, was the big problem, but yeah. I didn't realize it was that much more. Well, and that's why thawing permafrost is such a big deal, because mm. it releases a lot of methane. Exactly. Mm. And now that everybody seems to be running for liquid natural gas, we're just amplifying the problem. Yeah. So it's a, it's a huge concern for the future. You know, it's like we we just double down. You know, we're saying, oh, we're not we're getting rid of oil, but we double down on something just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'm yeah, go. I'd say worse, because fracking actually contaminates groundwater, and uh, and people insist that it's safe, so it happens very close to where people live. So, yeah, I think it's actually worse. Mm-hmm. So you guys are going to occupy the uh, airwaves while I try to find the interview with Damien Gillis there. Mm. Well, you know what? I'm telling you, so we're getting rid of the natural gas stove and getting an electric one, especially mm-hmm. since I found an awesome one on Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, though, if your methane is, what, 87 times more insulating than your CO2, you actually reduce the greenhouse effect of methane by burning it. Um, hmm. Because if you were just to release it, it would have its full effect, whereas if you burn it, you reduce it to CO2. I yeah, think that's probably one of the things the industry is going to count on, saying, oh, no, we, we got it, we trap it, whatever we can't use, we burn. Uh, but I still that's think still that's not a solution. It's no, not a solution. Not. You're still creating huge problems well, when you frack, so you know why not just avoid the whole thing altogether? Still releasing massive carbon stores yeah. that ought to stay underground. I, I, we're, yeah. just, we're just talking about lat- natural <laughs> gas now. We haven't even gone into fracking and what it does to water tables and stuff like yeah. that, right? So, uh, but anyway, so I've got the interview here with uh, Damien. That's about 27 minutes. So I'll go ahead and play that. Be back after that. Well, my guest here today is Damien Gillis. He is a Vancouver-based documentary filmmaker with focus on environmental and social justice issue, especially relating to water, energy, and saving Canada's wild salmon. He's also the co-founder of the online publication The Common Sense Canadian, which I highly recommend. A snap, a snappy dresser, a great dancer. Thank you for coming, Damien. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks for the kind introduction. See, they love you around here. They love you in the valley. Damien, um, we're, we're, we're talking about liquid natural gas today, and uh, before we get on to that, uh, for those of us that might not know you, and shame on them if they don't, can you give us a quick uh, Reader's Digest of who you are? Well, I'm a, I do a few different things, but uh, one of them is uh, I produce documentary films. I'm uh, just finishing off a project I've been working on for the last three or four years called Fractured Land in conjunction with... CBC's documentary channel and knowledge network uh, that uh, follows a young First Nations man from Northeast BC that uh, whose family is in the midst of some of the biggest uh, shale gas or fracking operations in the world. So we're kind of looking at it through through his lens and uh, some of the tension between the need for economic development for for his community and, and what that's doing to also at the same time to their traditions and and lifestyle on the land. And so I also, as you noted, publish a, an environmental journal called the Common Sense Canadian. And 
I guess that sort of ties into who I am as a person and a, as a British Columbian and my history in this province, my family's history, which is to say I come from a, a long line of people who've worked in uh, for four generations in pretty much all the major resource industries that built this province and into this sort of uh, modern economic uh, entity that it is. And that includes forestry and mining and ranching and and this very oil and gas industry as well that uh, I've been looking at with, with keen interest in recent years. So I'm not approaching these issues from the perspective of uh, uh, sort of uh, um, particularly left-wing or tree-hugging uh, Perspective. I understand the role that these resources have played in our economy and in my own family's lives, but I also uh, recognize that how we manage these resources and particularly our environment is is of paramount importance uh, looking forward. And I think we need to be developing uh, sustainable economic opportunities for our future. There are a lot of big overarching issues like climate change and ecological issues that really should compel us to, to rethink some of these uh, traditional sectors. And per- particularly what I'm interested in is getting the best value for taxpayers with our public policy. I, I, I am very concerned that all, too often we give away uh, our raw resources without adding value, without creating local jobs and uh, e- economic benefits for British Columbians. And so when you look at industries like LNG, uh, like uh, exporting of raw logs and uh, various other practices in terms of our resource economy, that's what we're trying to do with the Common Sense Canadian is to open up a really a frank dialogue about how we can do better in these areas. My colleague, Rafe Mayer, is a former SOCRED cabinet minister uh, I think he embodies uh, a lot of the values that, that I have. It's why he's become a, a mentor and friend and colleague to me is that even though we're almost 50 years apart, I think we share a common concern for these things and, you know, maybe have certain conservative values, uh, but at the same time uh, really value our environment in this, uh, what makes us this place, Supernatural BC, so special to live in and really makes it, uh, the kind of place that people want to come from all around the world to see. And we often forget that uh, the tourism economy and these things like our wild salmon and our, our, our rivers and forests, et cetera, are the most important part of our economy, that $14 billion tourism economy that we have here. And this is all really up in the air right now when we talk about building massive oil ports and LNG terminals and these things on our coast to transform British Columbia into a major fossil fuel export region. And that's really the crux of where we're at right now. And that's that's what my films and uh, my work uh, through the Common Sense Canadian uh, really focus on. Well, you kind of preempted my next question. That's exactly what I wanted to ask. Uh, I was about to ask you, what's, what's the brief overview of the liquid natural gas situation here in BC? But I guess you kind of covered that already. Well, I, 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 could, I could go a little further for your listeners, if you like. I mean, yeah, it, it, because I, think I think there's a lot of people out there that hear it as a buzzword, a buzz line, and uh, they don't quite have an idea of what's actually going on. Well, you know, I'm doing a, uh, a presentation, uh, as I've done many around the province in, in Nanaimo tomorrow night. I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, 
you know, I was talking with a reporter from Nanaimo today, and our, our talk is is about fracking and LNG. And he asked me what the two those two things have to do with each other, and I said everything because LNG is going to be fracked gas. Uh, this is a process called uh, also called shale gas. Uh, which is a, a modern way of getting uh, gas out of the ground, deep underground from uh, shale beds where it's trapped. Uh, trapped is an interesting term. It's as though we're there. It's there for us to liberate it somehow and and put it <laughs> to use. Uh, but that's it, it is a modern technology. It's not what my uncles who work in the industry, what they grew up uh, working in. It has a complete different set of environmental impacts. It's much more. Uh, damaging to the climate and in terms of water and land disturbance and all sorts of other things, um, this modern way of getting gas and predominantly right now we're about 50-50 in the province from con- uh, conventional and unconventional gas, but uh, most of the new sources that are coming online are from this modern technique fracking or shale gas. And in order to supply the enormous volumes of gas that would be required to build this liquefied natural gas industry, we would have to dramatically ramp up that fracking. So there's a whole suite of, of, of problems and, and issues that come along with that. The reason that we're looking at uh, liquefying this gas is in order to be able to put it onto tankers and export it to new markets in Asia, places like China, Malaysia, Japan, India. The reason we're doing that is because with this fracking, uh, it has unleashed a whole bunch of new supply into the market in North America. And essentially this industry is a victim of its own success. It created so much, uh, such a big glut of new supply that it drove domestic prices down to the point where they can no longer even make money in most cases. And so meanwhile, uh, various Asian countries were paying significantly more for natural gas. The only way to get it to that market though, is to turn it into a liquid that requires enormous amounts of energy to compress it and cool it into a liquid, put it on a tanker and take it halfway around the world to those Asian markets. Uh, there are a whole lot of issues though with this whole economic paradigm. We were promised $100 billion in a prosperity fund that would wipe away our debt and pay for schools and hospitals by Christy Clark in the last election. This is really the issue it was the central plank in her platform that she ran and won on. And what's happened, though, is as we and various economists and people that contribute to the Commons Canadian have been warning for years, is that that price gap is, was artificial in short term. And sure enough, it's already fallen to half what it was just two years ago. And it's now at a point where because LNG costs so much more to produce, it's so much more ener- uh, less energy efficient, uh, we're at a point now where we're below the break-even point for selling to that Asian market, which is why the 18 LNG proposals that have come on the table in recent years for places like Kitimat and Prince Rupert and even in the Lower Mainland, mm-hmm. um, the latest, uh, you know, a latest report in the National Post, the Financial Post from last week, uh, quoting a top energy um, investment uh, analyst, predicted that only two of those 18 projects would be developed by the early 2020s, even later than what the government was promising. And all of those benefits that were promised to the public have been wiped away. So we've cut the tax regime, the export tax and the royalties down to nothing. We're giving this industry back 
half a billion, six, uh, from half a billion to a billion dollars a year in, in, in taxpayer subsidies and royalty credits. Uh, we're slashing local jobs by turning to places like uh, China and India and Malaysia to import foreign temporary workers to build this industry that we've been promised. So all of the job promises and the taxpayer benefits and everything that came with building this industry that carries enormous environmental costs uh, have has has been has evaporated before our eyes, and that's the kind of thing that, as a common sense Canadian, really offends me. Uh, none of this should be come as a surprise. We've been predicting this in our pages for for several years now. Just reading the available economic tea leaves. Anybody should have been able to predict this. So either our government is uh, stupid and they don't do their homework and, and they, they really made bad plans or they've been misleading the public uh, to go along with this program. Either way, it's not serving us very well. No, and, and I find it very interesting that uh, they would uh, try to ship this to China because did not uh, did China not sign an agreement with Russia, which can, of course, uh, get this gas much cheaper and much closer to market than we can? Yeah, it's it, the, the deal that they signed was uh, for three or four hundred billion dollars worth of gas, probably about a third of China's gas needs. Looking forward, and it was you're quite correct. It was at a price point of ten to eleven dollars, which is about is at or below the break-even point for what we can uh, even make money off of selling LNG to Asia, and that's gas in a pipeline. And Russia has a quarter of the world's gas reserves. And it's it has a land-based connection to China, so it doesn't need to go through this whole extra costly process of, of compressing gas and tank and putting on a tanker. Yeah. They could just build a pipeline to Shanghai or Beijing, and that's exactly what they're going to do. And so that's another reason. I mean, there are many reasons why this 18, 16 to 18 dollar a unit price compared to our four dollars here was not going to hold. Uh, another one, you know, that, that, that's because of that one is because of competition from other suppliers like Russia, other major LNG competitors like Mozambique, Qatar, Australia, Papua New Guinea. So we're, we're really pretty Johnny come lately to this race and we're losing. Uh, the other big issue is, as, as your listeners will have heard lots about lately is plum, the plummeting oil prices around the world. These Asian LNG contracts are indexed to global oil prices so so long as oil is below fifty dollars a barrel those prices are going to go even further uh, down to a point where we would be you know anybody that was shipping that fuel would be losing millions of dollars a tanker and therefore they're not going to sink the 10 20 30 billion dollars into building the pipelines and the uh, terminals that they need to actually create this industry in BC. So there are many, many arguments why this was never going to pan out. And these are the very things we've been talking about for the last couple of years. And, you know, this government seems to, it's still bullish on the industry in spite of all of this evidence and all of the big players that have gotten cold feet and backed out that haven't made not a single final investment decision amongst all these 18 proposals. And I don't expect, I don't think we're going to see two. I don't think we're going to see a single one. Uh, if we do, it may be one. Uh, and we're talking years away and we've given away the tax regime. So we're not going to see any benefit from it, regardless of whether it is built or not. 
Mm-hmm. So, so is it is it fair then for some of these people that are out there? They're they're pro pipeline. They're pro all this. They 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 claim that LNG is essentially a bridge fuel. You know, uh, trying to get into uh, the natural gas instead of oil and moving mm-hmm. on to green. What what do you what do you think about this? I mean, I well, think it's a crock, but they haven't done their their research. They're not reading the latest climate science coming out of places like Cornell University. I've been there. I've interviewed the top. Uh, scientists in the world that are are working in this emerging field of shale gas and looking at the real climate implications of this resource. And what they say is that not only in the traditional comparison is between uh, natural gas and coal, because they function in a lot of the same ways. They're used for heating and they're used for electricity generation. And uh, as as compared to, you know, versus oil, which is, which is, used more for powering our vehicles and transportation and such. Uh, when the, if you listen very carefully, if the government or the various other proponents of this industry are being honest, they will say that natural gas burns cleaner than coal. It does probably 30, 40%. The problem is that that's a very narrow view. If you take a step back and look at the entire life cycle of that process, you you have to also include the extraction process and the processing and piping and all these other things. And what we have learned is that natural gas, first of all, is predominantly methane. Methane is on a 20-year time scale about 86 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than conventional CO2. So uh, if that gas leaks out, during the the extraction and the piping process, then it has devastating climate consequences. And what we now know is that a far greater quantity, probably something like five times more than what this government is operating on, uh, is leaking into the atmosphere through that process. Uh, It ranges between three and a half and seven percent. They call it five percent on average compared to what this government's using a figure of one percent. So it's five times worse for the climate than what they've ever acknowledged. And that means that it is now, not only is it worse than coal, it's probably, according to these top uh, scientists like Robert Howarth at Cornell University, Mm -hmm. shale gas is the worst of the fossil fuels. It is now we're into the realm. And then when you add that into the, the LNG process, because that requires more burning of natural gas to create all the power required to free, to chill it into a liquid. All the gas has to be burned or bled off to power the tankers voyage all the way to China. Now you're talking about just adding an extra factor to that. This LNG, our government brags that it is the uh, cleanest fossil fuel on the planet. That's their slogan. And in fact, it is the exact opposite. It's probably fair to say that this is the dirtiest fossil fuel, commercially available fossil fuel ever invented. And we're looking at a three to four fold increase of our entire carbon footprint as a province if you were to go forward with the LNG industry on the scale that they're proposing. So this is an incredibly irresponsible program, uh, you know, in, in terms of our role with climate change in the world. Not only that, but then you have this whole set of ecological impacts where you're taking on average 70 million liters of water. That's 30 Olympic swimming pools of fresh water out of the northern rivers, lakes, streams, boreal muskeg in per frac, injecting that full of toxic chemicals and blasting it underground. 
taking it out of the hydrological cycle and uh, and contaminating that water and creating the risk of, of future groundwater contamination from leaching and um, cracked casings and such. They pretend like this is all very safe, but they're still removing enormous volumes, 10 to 20 billion liters a year of water out of our ecosystems and contaminating them. And we do have strong evidence in a lot of places, and even including BC recently, despite the, the statements that this is, we've never had any water contamination in BC from this industry. Those are bold-faced lies uh, from our government in the industry, I have documented at the Common Sense Canadian multiple instances of a water contamination from this industry. Uh, so, and the industry itself has acknowledged it in these cases. So uh, there's, those are huge kind of localized ecological consequences that come from this industry. So there's no, the, the notion that this is a bridge fuel, that is just preposterous. That's 15 year old thinking. When you're looking back to natural gas from the old way of getting it, conventional natural gas, that's just not the way that the future is going. Mm -hmm. And those people that make those statements have either, you know, deliberately ignored uh, the latest data that's come out uh, or they're, they're just not very bright. And either way, again, they're taking huge risks on behalf of uh, the public when they push for this industry. Well, absolutely. Um, I, I find it uh, just amazing to see, uh, despite what we're seeing happening in uh, Pennsylvania uh, with uh, water contamination, and actually uh, I think it's also in Pennsylvania where they're actually uh, starting to uh, bring these companies to court for <laughs> earthquakes that are caused, or was it Columbus, Ohio, and so somewhere around the states. Uh, is the yeah, government doing yeah. their very best to just make sure that we don't find this information and they're just trying to sell us on this natural gas because it says natural therefore it's green mm. uh, are, are they really that cynical to think that the average voter is just going to fall for this well so far we have i guess you could say in bc but that's starting to change and in canada we have moratoria in uh quebec in uh uh Nova Scotia, in Newfoundland, and in the Yukon so far. And we have other jurisdictions that are taking a hard look at this um, around the world, places like France, other European nations. Uh, the governor of New York recently made their more, they had a, a partial moratorium there in certain places. He made, issued a permanent ban on fracking in New York State. Uh, so other people around the world are looking at this science. This is a very new technology. That's the other thing you got to realize. People will say there's been fracking going on for 50 years, so this is nothing new. True, there are aspects of this process that we today call fracking that do go back a ways. Um, they used to use Gatling guns back in the day to sh literally shoot holes in shale to try to get the gas out. There's all sorts of schemes that have been tried but when I talk about modern shale gas, what we're talking about is high-volume, slick water, hydraulic fracturing using deep directional drilling, where a drill goes down two kilometers underground, it can then go sideways, and it can make multiple two, three-kilometer long sideways uh, incisions into the shale, and using creating these massive pressurized, essentially underground explosions with chemicals and, and, and high-pressure, high-volumes of high-pressure water. That collection of techniques came out of the Barnett Shale about 15 years ago, then moved to Pennsylvania to the Marcellus Shale that you alluded to. Yes. 
that's still relatively new and there's been very relatively little science done on it there's been an extraordinarily aggressive campaign brought about by this industry both in america and canada against anybody that dares to question it the litigious nature of the industry the attacks that they made in canada on people like jessica ernst on other farmers in alberta she's bringing you know a, a, what looks to be a, a potentially successful 36 million dollar lawsuit against in canada the biggest canadian gas producer they have done everything that they can to discredit her to threaten her to shut her down in the courts so this is a very very nasty uh business and the other thing that's really come to bear of late is that the economics of it it rooted in the geology really don't uh pan out the way that they've been promised a lot of these Guys, especially the medium and smaller players are going bankrupt now because, well, this gas comes on hot and heavy very early on. It dies off quickly. Uh, this is the nature of the geology, the geological characteristics of, of shale gas that's very different from conventional gas. So when we were early on, we were hitting these uh, gas and production was soaring and everything looked great. And these guys were going to banks and they were borrowing billions of dollars to expand their plays. And then two, three years later, they started to see, oh, in the, in the average across the five big plays, 80% of the U.S. industry has an over 80% three-year decline rate. That means that over three years, after three years in production, a well will be down to, it will have lost 80% of its initial flow. And at that point, it's no longer worth anything. Mm. It's cost more to get it out of the ground than, than, than what it's worth. And so... We're seeing that not only are we learning new things about the science of this industry, but we're learning new things about the economics and the geology of it that suggests that it is not the you know miraculous new uh, resource that it was promised to be. Hmm. And it, you know it stands to reason. It's why you don't necessarily want to rush into something like this until you've had a bit of a chance to do the science. And, and figure out what's really there. And we're just at that point now, and our government just rushed headlong into this and bet our whole future on it before it had done the science. Yeah, it kind of reeks of desperation, too, when you get into the, when these wells are peaking so quickly. You know, it seems the entire industry seems to be desperate to keep green energy from coming forward. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen certainly the emphasis in this country has been squarely on uh, these sort of risky, uh, con uh, unconventional fossil fuel sources, the oil sands, uh, uh, fracking, et cetera. And that has been to the detriment. We've diverted pub enormous public subsidies, a billion dollars a year in BC towards natural gas, uh, multiple billions of dollars a year uh, federally towards the oil sands. And we are investing almost nothing in renewable technology and innovation. And so, and now guess what happens? You know, it's not, I'm not here to say I told you so, or, you know, you know, delight in, in the current situation. But look at what happens when you put all your eggs, either in our province or Stephen Harper's government, in one basket and oil prices fall through the floor. And you start having all sorts of problems with the geology and the environmental issues with these projects. Yeah. And you just, roll right over protesters and citizens, not protesters, just average citizens who have a concern, who have a right to ask these questions, and they're criminalized, 
and uh, new laws are passed to gut our, our democratic processes and our, science, our scientific community and our environmental protections and all of these things, this dogmatic uh, obsession with one particular industry or collection of technologies. And when, when that doesn't work, you find yourself in a pickle. And that's where we're at now. And so that does argue for, you know, we should be learning something from this and looking at investing in developing sustainable economic alternatives and energy options. Uh, every other major industrialized country is doing this right now. Germany has 400,000 jobs in the clean technology sector. China has 2 million. Uh, you know, America, Denmark, a lot of major industrial countries have seen the wisdom in investing in these industries and they're reaping huge benefits from it. And we're sitting here on the sidelines, uh, you know, kind of wondering what the hell had just happened. Yeah, totally. Oh, well, thanks, Damien. I appreciate that. Now, here's your chance. Go ahead. Be shameless. Plug everything you got, my friend. I want to support you. I want to make sure everybody knows about the Common Sense Canadian. Go for it. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, your readers can, or listeners, rather, excuse me, can go to commonsensecanadian.ca to check out this uh, journal that we have. We've got lots of expert contributors to talk about the very issues we're discussing here today in depth. That's commonsensecanadian.ca. And uh, I also urge your listeners to check out or to watch out for uh, my forthcoming documentary film, Fractured Land, which will be playing around the province sometime later this year. Uh, we're just finishing the film off now. It will be eventually broadcast on Knowledge Network, but you can uh, just Google Fractured Land or find us on Facebook and Twitter under that name as well. Yeah, they can also find uh, the rest of your fine videos uh, somewhere like YouTube, right? That's right, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Damien. Thank you for uh, inviting us about the LNG, and uh, we hope to see you very soon again, and we'll talk about some more interesting stuff. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Great guy, by the way. I can't wait to bring him back for something else. Yes, very articulate. Yeah. Very nice to listen to. Uh, he He's also uh, very knowledgeable in things like uh, Run of the River Projects in BC and the whole salmon issue. He's very knowledgeable on that, too. So we'll hear from him again for sure. Anything you guys want to add to this interview? Uh, no. Well, that was our show Uh, We'll be uh, coming at you soon With another show Next show we're actually going to be interviewing Rachel Nanon Brown It's going to be an all ladies show Ladies, women Okay Okay. An all women show Yours truly is not going to be there I might just be doing the technical stuff And trying to keep my head low The girls are taking over And it's going to be a great show, right? Of course Yes, we're going to call it Women in Science it's not even going to be fictional. It's going to be a real show. <laughs> Mark, you can send your complaints at Karen at com. Thank you for the awesome list, Mark. Thank you to all our contributors. We really appreciated having you all. And um, I guess we'll see everyone here. Listen, talk to everyone next time. <laughs> you just know how to end the show, don't you? Yeah. I know. No, actually, you can send us your love mail, your hit mail at left at the valley at outlook.com. And you can uh, visit our webpage, which needs to be updated, by the way. You're giving me that dirty look. Yeah. www.leftatthevalley.com That's right. Until next time, take it easy, guys. Bye.